Well, good morning to you. Good to see you on this Lord's Day. Well, you, if you're a guest with us today, again, we're delighted to have you here today. And maybe some of you, you've been coming for a little while, and you probably have had conversations if you've been coming with, with folks here, and if you've been here a long time, and you, we have guests that are here, you many times will... Maybe you'll be standing over in the fellowship hall and having a cup of coffee and eating a snack, which you're welcome to join us for after the service. But, but when, when you meet somebody new, you often start with questions like, um, what do you do? Uh, where are you from? Uh, just kind of trying to get to know somebody. Um, or maybe take it out of that realm, just imagine you're on a first date. Um, it's been a long time, but... Uh, But you're sitting across from one another and maybe at a coffee house or at a restaurant or something like that and you start the conversation like this. So, tell me about yourself. When someone says to you, tell me about yourself, what do you say? How do you start that conversation? Do you say, well, I have blue eyes, blonde hair, I'm 5'4", I wait, no, you ain't going to say that, but um, of course, you don't say any of those things. I hope not, because your first date may be your last date. Uh, That's a little weird to start that answer in that way. When someone says, tell me about yourself, what do you do? You you, you start telling your story. You, 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 You start telling stories from your past Um as Pastor Dow said we, when we had our elder uh, retreat this weekend and the deacons came down, joined us Friday night and um, we, did, we had these little hot seat, hot spot moments and, and uh, to fire questions, some serious, some humorous and, and, and we learned a lot. But what, was, what happened in those? People were telling stories and I'm going to show the same restraint that Howard did and not share some of those stories with you today. Some of them are glad for that. I can see them sweating. Um, but the only way we properly answer that question, tell me about yourself, again, it's to tell a story, tell a series of stories. And we often say just that, not tell me about yourself, but what do you say? Tell me your story. Tell me your story. That's a way of saying, I want to know you. I want to know about you. I want to, to, to know uh, who you are, what you're about. Tell me your story. This is how we learn about people. Well, the Bible is a story. The Bible is a true story. And it's a story about God. When God chose to reveal Himself to us, He didn't just give us this description of Himself. I have white hair. I have eyes that are flames of fire. Um, He doesn't start that way. Now, eventually, we're going to see in the book of Revelation, He comes to describe Himself in this way. But, but that's not how He begins revealing Himself to us. He begins by telling His story. And we just read this, the very beginning of this story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the, of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And I said, let there be light, and there was light. And I saw that the light was good. I'm just putting it into God's words. But He starts telling a story. He starts telling other stories about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, into Egypt, out of Egypt, the calling of priests and prophets and kings. 
He's telling his story by sharing stories. We learn about him through narrative, through story. That's how God tells about himself. The Bible is this single story from beginning to end, written over hundreds, thousands of years, and 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 with many different human authors, but God's telling the story. It's not just a, a bunch of random stories that are crammed together that don't have anything to do with one another. That's not it at all. It's a single story from Genesis to Revelation. And the story shows us, the story reveals to us, the story teaches us about who God truly is. And so, we, and we need that. Desperately. Because we, as collective humanity, we, we have a very distorted and deluded and diminished and corrupted view of God. Concept of God. We make God into our image all the time. We, 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 have a, we, we can create these gods who don't challenge us, they don't confront us, they don't ever disagree with us or our practices. And when we do that, we have a deity that can never change us, can never challenge us. And we can never be transformed by Him because, because we made Him into our own image. Listen, if the God you profess to believe in always agrees with you, and always agrees with your thoughts and your desires and your words and your behavior, you do not believe in the God who created you. You believe in a God that you created. That's very significant. And that's why it's so important to learn God through Genesis. This is, we, we need this revitalized understanding of who God really is. Is And the opening verses of the Bible here in Genesis 1, they bring us face to face with God, with ultimate reality in the beginning, God. And so the Bible starts, as we said earlier, by assuming God. He is, he is there. The very first phrase in Genesis brings, it, it declares this, this metaphysical assumption that the pres, this present transcendent eternal Creator God who is the cornerstone of the entire biblical revelation. God. And in the remainder of this opening chapter of Scripture, this one true eternal God is on full display in the creation of everything that He... of His creation of the world and everything in it. And so, that's what we see in this chapter we just read. We're seeing our God. And what He's made. Now remember the context of Genesis. And we're going to keep coming back to here because it's so important as we study through this book together. Israel had been in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. And, 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 and in Egypt, they, were, they worshipped the, the, the Egyptians. They worshipped the sun and, and a whole host of, of other deities and gods. Gods of their own making. And now here they are in the wilderness. They're surrounded by nations who have... Fertility gods and warrior gods and uh, gods of the sea and gods who guarantee healthy, abundant crops and moon gods and star gods and all of these gods. And some people offered food to these gods. And some offered their own children. Killed their own children to appease these gods. But all these gods, they're, they're man-made. 
They're, they're manufactured. They're created to align with, with our lives, with our desires. And so you, <coughs> you want to travel safely across the sea, you make some sacrifice to this sea god of your imagination. And that's been, it's been created by people. And you want good crops, so you have this God of the harvest. And so you have all of these things. And, and so Genesis is against that backdrop that God plainly and powerfully reveals Himself through Moses to His people, to us. And so it's written to first lead Israel to put the full weight of their confidence, of their trust in the one true God, in the Lord, and in Him alone. To keep, them, to keep them from being drawn away into idol worship to, to, and, and to worship the Lord alone. To keep them from being drawn away into trusting other gods that are created in our own image to support what we want. And that same original purpose for Genesis could not possibly be more relevant to us today. Right? If we're honest, we, we say this is the constant need of our lives as well as Christians even, to, to see the Lord for who He truly is and to trust in Him alone. It's to resist that constant undercurrent of, of, of idolatry that pulls on our hearts and pulls us to trust other things than the Lord. So we need to constantly be coming back and saying, Lord, it's You and it's You alone and the Lord has given us this great reminder in the Lord's table and we're going to come and do that in just a moment. <coughs> but today... We're going to walk through this first chapter of Genesis and take this large sweep of the text. And obviously we can't go into great detail on all of these. But I don't think that's the important... That, that, that what we really need to see is a sweep of what God has made and how He's revealed Himself in these things. So we're going to get this overview of the six creation days. We're going to come back and, and we're going to really zero in on that sixth day when this apex of creation and the creation of mankind. And so we'll come back in that. And I will probably also, uh, next week, I, I think it's going to be important to spend some time. Uh, I, I just don't know how to get around this. And I don't want to get sidetracked in our study, but some of the controversy that that is created around this creation account and and even in evangelical circles. And I wish that it wasn't necessary to say those things, to say some of these things, but I can't ignore the fact that there are intelligent, godly Christians who find the traditional interpretation and plain meaning of Genesis 1 untenable. And so I at least need to say something about that, but that's, I'm going to hold off till, till next week to do that. And so if you're in that camp, that's okay. Um, I'm glad you're here. I'm not going to make fun of other views. That's not my point. But I do want to share why I think the historical interpretation of Genesis isn't just accurate, but it's, it's vitally important to our understanding of the rest of Scripture. And as, I, as we said at the beginning, if you, if you stumble out of the gate in Genesis 1, you're, 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 you're going to be um, struggling to understand how things fit together throughout Scripture. So historically, until the last 150, maybe 200 years, you can't find anybody who's questioning the historical uh, reliability of the creation account. You just don't find anybody in, 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 in church history. And so who viewed these days in Genesis 1 as anything but literal days, same kind of days you and I know, but there has been considerable discussion and difference in more recent days as to the nature of these days in Genesis 1. So there have been all kinds of alternative theories developed and 
And most, most have come out of the context of this desire to harmonize this special revelation in Genesis 1 with modern sciences and geology and paleontology and archaeology and anthropology and this kinds of things. So I'm not going to get into those theories or views now or anything, but I, I just want to simply walk through the text today, understand its plain meaning, and, I, and again, but though I, I, I'm convinced that a plain literal reading of Genesis 1 seems to be most in line with the purpose of Genesis. That, that's what fits the, 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 the great purpose. It's revealing God and calling for our singular trust in Him. And what, what that was the intended original purpose, that's still what God wants for us. And so, and again, this has been, this is not a new view, this is the old traditional view. I'll just give you a few little examples to give you before we go to that. Some of the, the, those older uh, post-Reformation confessions of faith, they all affirm this. It wasn't questioned, it wasn't even up for debate. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Presbyterian uh, uh, kind of foundational document, 1647 of creation, it said this is what they confess. It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. And you have the London Baptist Confession, so if you're not into baptizing babies, then that's more rings with you. It says essentially the same thing. It's, it pleased, in the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. And so that's what... That's what's been attested to throughout history. And so uh, that lengthy introduction, let's turn to the text here and walk through it um, for a few minutes before we come to the table. So my, my prayer as we walk through these days is not to, again, this is not a science manual. We have one page that tells us the origin of everything. And so it's not intended to give us all the details. And I, I realize, and I thank God for uh, those that give thought to this and try to um, and, and take take the account in, as as historical and as, as in its plain meaning and trying to give some scientific undergirding and that that's a great work to do and it can really help us as Christians. But I'm not going to try to bring in all of that data that that others have have brought to this because I don't want to confuse the simplicity of what's in Scripture with with kind of uh, reasonable theories of how exactly what this looked like in in all of those ways. What I want us to see. And what God has intended, and what these early confessions of faith even said, we want to see the manifestation of God's power and His wisdom and His goodness in this account of creation. And so, remember last week we saw that when God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, they were without form and void. What does that mean again? It means they were uninhabitable, without form, formless. That that mankind couldn't live there, and they were void. They were uninhabited. And so now God is going to change that. He's going to give the world form in the first three days of creation, and He's going to and He's going to fill the world in the the last three days, days four to six. So God forms in verses three to thirteen. Look at the first day in verse three to five with me. And right away, day one, we see God's sheer power expressed. God says, and it comes into being. 
And God said, let there be light, and there was light. You may have heard this expression if you've uh, talked and heard sermons about Genesis 1. Talk about creation by fiat. And that's, fiat is a, is a Latin word, just means for, it's, it's a word for word or, or order. And in the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Old Testament, and that, that first significant translation of the Old Testament, there are the, the first three words of verse three, or first words of verse three are what? They're fiat lux. Let there be light. What, what are you saying? God said light into being. God said light into being. His only tool was His Word, the revelation of His will, His speech, fiat, that's all. And so we see this power of God. He just says light and there's light. And, and again, stressing the sheer power of God. We're going to walk through this, this chapter and there's these eight simple commands in this chapter. And Moses said God, through those eight commands, He spoke reality into being. It's an awesome thought. And, and it's one that it's worth just letting your mind linger on that for a little bit. That by eight words, God spoke the whole ordered universe into existence. God is bigger than the universe. He is. He dwarfs the universe. The universe is not ultimate. God is ultimate. And that's very contrary to, to the, the way the Babylonians thought in Moses' day and the way most think in our own day. But God is bigger. When He speaks order into being, it comes into being. So God commanded the light to shine, and then the text says, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And so there's this separation right on day one, this division, this distinction between day and night. And we're going to see this carry on through the Genesis account, and we're going to see it carry on throughout the Scriptures, this this, this order that's woven into the very fabric of creation, this distinction, it's a part of the expression of the wisdom of God. He's going to, again, we're going to see this as we walk through each of these days of creation. Now, again, I know a question comes up, how could there be light when there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no stars, those aren't created until the fourth day? I think, I think the best understanding of this is just the light is from God Himself, who is light, John 1. And He... The Scriptures speak of Him wearing light as a garment. I realize that's poetic language, but God is the source of light here. And we know in Revelation 22, at the end of the story, in the New Jerusalem, in the eternal city, there's going to be light. And the light's not going to come from the sun and moon, from those bodies. It's going to, we're going to enjoy endless light just from, from God Himself. So I think that's what's, what we see here. Now look at verses 6-8, to eight, day 2, and we can't, Again, I'm going to have to keep, keep pressing forward here. But God transforms this formless, void earth by dividing waters above from waters below. Now, okay, we understand exactly what that means, I know, right? But there, he says, verse 6, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So the lower waters that seem eventually become the seas and the oceans. And, 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 and I mean, I know, again... I don't know exactly what these heavenly waters are. I mean, we, 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 we can't know that. I've never seen heavenly waters, waters that are above the sky. Uh, again, I think there are great understandings. Clearly, there's some kind of 
of water canopy or something. And we, we find when we get into the flood account, the worldwide flood, the waters from above, they're unleashed upon the water and they're, they're released. And so that's part of the, the flood. Now again, we'll talk about this next week, but we, we struggle to look back and understand uh, creation, this creation account because we're looking, we have to look past some barriers. And one of those big barriers is the flood. It's just a different world. Uh, we're going to talk more about that next week. But, uh, but, but there you have these separation again, separation again, this order, this, this, this design, the wisdom of God. One, of the, one other thing I want to note before we move to the third day is already by the second day, you see this, this formula that's, that's emerged, and it's going to be there in each of these days, and there's six parts to it, and it repeats itself over and over. In each of these days, one, there's this introductory word, God said, and God said, or then God said. Also, there's a creative word. God says, let there be fill in the blank, whatever is being created. And then there's a fulfillment word, thirdly, and it was so. And I, I've underlined those here. Again, it just expressing the, the power of God. God said, it was so. God said, it was so. And it's just showing that what God had spoken into being had in fact been created. It happened. There's also a lordship word where God names the things that He has created. That's that, that, that God shows His lordship and the naming of the things He makes. See, that's very important as we're going to come to the creation of man in particular. But each day, it's, it, it, God called uh, uh, the light day. And he called the darkness night. And God, God calls the expanse, the sky, the heavens. So, so that's, that's, uh, he's naming these things. He's, he's showing his lordship. There's also a commending word in all but one of the days. And so God, God, God says, um, it was good. In the sixth day, it was very good. Um, we'll talk more about that also. And then there's this concluding word, and, the, and it's usually the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning, and then again you can fill in the blank which day this was. So, so again, you see this pattern, you see this structure, you see this order uh, right there already in, in day two. Now move to the third day, verse 9 and following here. So verse 9 to 10, you have the description of the formation of the seas and the dry land. Again, you have division, you have barriers. We read this in Job 38. God says the seas are going to come up this far and not, a, not any, any more. And so God has separated the, the land from the seas. Now again, just consider the context of, of, of Moses' day and as, as Israel is they're, they're going through the wilderness. And you have the pagan neighbors of Israel who have all kinds of myths about the heavens and the earth and the seas. And, and so, but what is Moses doing? What is God doing through Moses? He's declaring that He and He alone is the Creator and Lord of them all. There are no competing rivalries. There's not the God of the sea and the God of the land and the God of the sky. There's one God who made them all. So He's, he's making this declaration. And, then, and so God is, God is forming. He's forming this, this, this earth that's without form and He's making it habitable. And now he begins to fill it. And we see it already on day 3. There's this shift in verse 11 when God begins to fill his creation. And so even in the filling of his creation, there's this display of, of incredible power. And so God, God caused plant life to appear in verse 11 there to appear on the earth. Grasses and, and, and seed-producing herbs and fruit-bearing trees. And, and God, 
gave the earth power to reproduce. Look at verse 11. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Now, up to this point, all the creation that we see here, it's a special creation in the sense that God Himself is immediately bringing, uh, bringing it into being. But now he's, he's using the earth itself to bring into being other things. Trees, plants, grasses, etc. But what I want you to see, even here though, we see that the earth's ability to reproduce and to produce, it comes from God. Directly from God. So again, think of the context and, and even the way we think in our day. But Moses makes it clear, like unlike the people in his day and all around them who worship the earth... Unlike people in our own day who worship the earth, Moses makes it clear, the earth itself does not have inherent, innate power to produce. It is only God. He is the Lord. Of, 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 and he is the one who causes growth. Only God gives the earth power to bring other things into being. And so even in this Word, God again is showing us His sovereign power over the whole earth. We see His power. We see His wisdom. Again, those plants are, are reproducing according to their own kind. And again, this is an expression that's going to be repeated in this chapter. That uh, the, and say, It will be the same with the birds and with the, and the fish and the animals. That, that there's according to their kind, there's this order, there's this wisdom that God has woven into the fabric of creation. Now, let me just pause and just playful imagination here. I... I start to think when the earth starts being... I mean, it's all just more than the mind can, can comprehend. And again, we're not giving a lot of details exactly what this looks like. But just imagine what it would have been like and nobody was there to witness this third day of creation. Just God says, let the earth sprout vegetation. Boom, trees, grass. I mean, it's incredible. Whether they grew like lightning fast or whether they just appeared and... Uh, I mean, we're not really told, but just it's just it's quite a sight to behold. And again, each day is just you start thinking like that. On the fourth day, day four, we see God is sovereign over all the markers that order our lives, and so the sun and the moon are created by God, and God assigns them to do their work. He He gives them their their purpose, their task, and their purpose is to divide day and night and to provide signs to mark off days and years and seasons. And so in Moses' day, again, the sun and the moon were worshipped by people. And you can see why. Because people's whole lives were ordered by the sun and the moon, by day and night. They, they didn't have lights. They didn't have electricity. And so when the sun went down, that was it. Work day is done. I mean, you, you, you had some candle power, some little oil lamps, but that was it. And so the sun and the moon, they ordered all of life. They ordered the seasons of life. And they're these major markers. And so there were people who naturally worshipped these, these objects that so controlled their lives. But again... What is God saying about Himself on this fourth day? He's making it clear that the sun and the moon, they're not gods to be worshipped. They're created by God. They're gifts from God to us to order our lives. 
They're not powers over us. They're simply God-given markers to us. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, verse 14. And so they, they govern us only in, a sense that they, in the sense that they providing, they're providing these markers for us. They're for signs, they're for seasons. They separate day from night. Now my favorite phrase of the fourth day is that phrase and little phrase in verse 16, and the stars. See there, that God made these two great lights, the sun and the moon. Oh yeah, the stars too. It's just like it's a, this afterthought or something. I mean, if I had made the stars, I would be rubbing your faces in it and be talking about it from now until eternity. But God just kind of throws it off in a phrase. And uh, just, it's just one word in the Hebrew. Stars also. Yeah, just a trillion stars. Um, but, but again... Even in that little phrase, in that one little word, this, you see the sheer power of our sovereign God on display. God's, he's, he's, tell, he's, he's telling us His story. This is, what I, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. I created the stars also. And He's calling for us to know Him, to trust Him, to worship Him alone. The, the nations around Israel, they believe that these heavenly bodies had control on their lives. I mean, in, in, in the Babylonians had something very similar to the way uh, even the Chinese zodiac works today. They had these 12 different uh, animals that were, uh, were connected with stars and they, they searched the signs and they wanted, their lives were controlled by, by those things. And again, people today, they follow these horoscopes and astrology and these kinds of things. But God just destroys those lies and superstitions in these verses, instead he's saying, you trust me alone. I'm the one who made those heavenly bodies. I'm the one who made the stars. And the stars also. He's the Lord of the heavenly hosts. Day five, quickly. The fifth day teaches us about the creation of the sea creatures and the birds. So he made birds to fly in the sky, marine life to swim in the seas. And so you got whales and sharks and, and crocodiles and swordfish, tuna, dolphin, octopus, all the cool little creatures we see at the Georgia Aquarium and, and all of these fishes and above the cardinals and the eagles and the ravens and the hawks and the ducks and all this stuff. And so the skies, again, the seas, they're just now teeming with God's handiwork. All of this diversity and all this variety, all from the mind and the mouth of God, as it were. God just spoke. By fiat, his power, and he and he's, and he's he's over all of these things. Now, again, we may not think like this, but the the sea in, in the in those creatures of the sea, there was so much mystery uh, surrounding those things in in Moses's day, and in some ways in our day too. I mean, we're we can't help but be just astonished when you see the video of a tsunami or of uh, one of those cruise ships or cargo ships being tossed by. Uh, the waves and the storm. I mean, it's 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 frightening. This power, and and this is so in an even greater way. We didn't. They didn't have the forecasting and the radar to see these storms, and so it just it, it seemed like like the gods were angry at them when these storms came. And so so the Babylonians, for instance, they they believe we talked about this last week. Tiamat was this this uh, goddess of the marine life of the of the salt sea. And, and, and she existed before all of the other gods existed and 
fought against these other gods of Babylon for the control of the world. Now just imagine that. The very first god has to uh, fight off and eventually loses to some other upstart gods. Is that really what you want to put your confidence and trust in? But this is, this is how they found But But here, this matter is settled. There are no rival sea gods. The Lord alone, according to the fifth day, is the creator of the seas and is creator of everything in the seas. He, 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 he's over it all. The things that frighten us most in this world, this passage tells us, it, it, these are just merely creatures of God. Creations of His. He speaks fiat. They're made. It's absolute control. And then there's this new element that's added to God's work on this day. He, he not only called His work good, but He, he blessed the creatures He made. Barak. You know, or Baraka. Blessing. And so God blessed them. Verse 22, God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. It's the first time the word bless or blessed is used in the Bible. And it's, here it's talking about God's blessing that enabled the creatures and the birds to reproduce abundantly to enjoy all that He had, he had made for them. He's going to bless the first man and woman. He's going to bless the Sabbath day. He's going to bless Noah and his family. And so this is going to be a recurrent theme through this account. And then last, day six, and we're going to talk more about this next week, so we'll just say it here. But sixth day, God creates land animals, verse 24, livestock, creeping thing, beasts on the earth according to their kinds, just all the types of land animals. And now we come to the, the, the climax and the apex. And it's like, it's like the narrative, as, you read, as we read through it, I, I think it, I, I was just thinking of this as how I was reading it. It's like things slow down on day six. And it's like slow, slow motion here. We're, we're moving and he's just, and this was created and this, and then we slow down and, and we get to the apex of the narrative and, and it's the creation of, of, of man. And the, and the specialness of this section is, is very clear in the text. In verse 26, the, the story changes from third person to first person plural. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You have this divine dialogue that's going on here. And so you have, we have little glimmers of Trinitarian revelation here that the Spirit of God's present in verse 2, hovering over the waters. And the New Testament makes this very clear. John 1 and other passages that Christ is there. He's the Word of God by which all things came into being. And so, so in, here you have this awesome declaration that man is made by God in consultation with Himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. And again, made in, in God's image. We're gonna, we'll, we'll say more about that next week or the week after. Well, what, is this, what does this story of creation tell us? What does it tell us about God? Tell me your story. And this is how it begins. It's here for the manifestation of God's power, His wisdom, and His goodness. I mean, we see those so clearly here. We see His, we see His power. We see His power in creation by fiat, by word, order. God said it was. We see His power in, in giving all these productive abilities to plants and birds and animals and, and sea creatures. We see His power and His sovereignty over even the most incredible forces on the planet. And He made the stars also. We see His wisdom and the design and the order of creation. We see His wisdom in the, all the details of creation. And we see His goodness. 
We are meant to see the goodness of God in this account after everything He makes. He says it's good. At ground zero, the idea of goodness is about blessing. It's, it's rooted in blessing. And the creation account is full of blessing. Now, again, you take that and you compare that with all of the false gods of the nations. There isn't one false god that surrounded the Israelites that, that in their man-made descriptions of him, her, it, whatever their gods and goddesses were, where they ascribed anything close to the type of blessing that God shows to us. There's nothing like that. There's no, no expression of, God's kind, of their God's kindnesses or, or of wanting a relationship or fellowship with Him. Nothing like that. And listen, God didn't have to create. He didn't need anything. He didn't need us. But He chose to create a world and in turn, He blessed. He blessed. And the rest of the Scriptures, the rest of the story, they, they're going to show, well, one, how that blessing was lost and how to get it back. Because Adam loses it. There's curse. There's judgment. There's death. Pain. Sorrow. Misery. Fallenness. Conflict. Disorder. Marriages torn apart. Relationships ripped ripped apart, tensions, nations at war with each other. So how are we going to get the blessing back? The rest of the Bible is saying, is is God saying, here's how. And you remember in Psalm 8, we were there a couple weeks ago, God's intention is to give man dominion over all the things that He made in this world full of goodness and wisdom and power and, and His intention is that man would have this perfect righteous rule over the world. But Adam forfeited and, and Adam failed in that purpose. And, and yet the writer of Hebrews says that it's still God's intention to give man righteous rule over his creation that is blessed by him. And the answer comes, the writer of Hebrews says, we do not see all things put under man, but we see Jesus, who was for a little while made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, and he by the grace, that he by the grace of God might taste death for all his people. Hebrews 2.9 Jesus became a curse for us. If you keep reading past the book of Genesis and you read the rest of the books of Moses and you get into the book of Numbers, there's this great ironic blessing where Israel is, is to get this blessing from Aaron the high priest. And he's to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. But then we see the way things are for Israel. The way things are for us. The, the, the curse of, of, of the law. We know our sinful hearts and we wonder, how will they, how do I get this blessing? How can this blessing be mine? And the answer, again, we look to Jesus. When Jesus hangs on the cross, in a very real sense, God, it's like God the Father lifts up His hands over His Son and says, the Lord curse you. The Lord forsake you. The Lord hide His face from you. The Lord pour out His wrath and anger upon you and may you be cursed. Jesus was cursed in our place, as it were. Paul says Christ became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everything who hang, everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's where everything is moving in the Bible. God's goodness is going to be restored through our Lord Jesus and His redeeming grace displayed on the cross. And while we wait for the full final con- consummation 
and culmination of that grace, we have absolute assurance and confidence because we see Jesus. And this is what we come and do as we eat and drink together in a moment. Let's pray together. Father, as we're going to sing now, it's, it's by this that we know love. It's, it's because our Lord laid down His life for us and became a curse for us. I mean, all that was lost in, in Adam as is restored in, in Jesus Christ because He He came and took the curse from us so that we could know blessing. And so, Lord, as we eat and drink, as we sing now, help us to remember delight in this glorious truth Christ suffered in our place that we might know uh, the glories of all that You intended in the blessing of Your people through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.